Welcome to Adventures in Evaluation Podcast with James Coyle and Kylie Hutchinson. Hi, my name is James Coyle. I'm an internal evaluator in a large regional health authority. And I'm Kylie Hutchinson. I'm an external evaluator uh, working... Working everywhere, all over the place, <laughs> worldwide. Seemed, I never seem to get that right. Anyways, and together we are Adventures, Adventures in, in Evaluation. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, you know, I just thought, I always say I'm an internal evaluator. I never say that around work. I, I don't know why it's become sort of my intonation on this podcast. And but. I'm an external, I guess we're always trying to make that um, distinction. Anyways. We've got a special guest. We do. We should call this, you know, one of the next chapters in our, you know, I, 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 icons of evaluation. <laughs> Maybe not such a sort of, you know, heavy metal sort of FM. <laughs> That's right. But we That's have right. an awesome guest today. And she certainly is an evaluation rock star, I got to tell is. you. She is. She yeah. is. I know she's pretty humble about it, but uh, I'm really looking forward to this call. So who have yeah. we got today? It's Hallie Preskill, and um, I'm thrilled that she's here to talk with us today. Two weeks ago, I was really fortunate to hear Hallie's keynote speech at the Canadian Evaluation Society Conference in Toronto, and it was really a powerhouse uh, keynote. It just had me thinking for days afterwards. And so I eagerly asked Hallie if she would consider giving us the Coles Notes version on our podcast, and, and thankfully she agreed. So Hallie, welcome to Adventures in Evaluation. Thank you, Kylie. It's wonderful to be here. I'm flattered and honored by the request. I was quite surprised. Um, <laughs> well, we're, we're thrilled to have you, and I thought maybe we could start off by just having you um, introduce yourself briefly. Sure. Um, so um, I am a managing director with a, a firm called FSG. Uh, F is in Frank, S is in Sam, S is in George. Actually, it's <laughs> the Sam for Foundation Strategy Group. Um, and I oversee our strategic learning and evaluation practice. And FSG is a nonprofit consulting firm that does research and uh, focuses on strategy and, and evaluation, of course, as well. And uh, we work primarily with uh, the philanthropic sector um, and corporate philanthropy and large nonprofits. Um, and so um, I'm based in the Seattle office, and, and prior to FSG, where I've been for four years, I was an academic, but I've learned to say the good kind um, for, for, 22, <laughs> for 22 years in three different universities in the U.S. Okay, and I, I will not ask you what the bad kind means. Um, <laughs> we'll just go on. Well, um, actually, it does. It actually is kind of interesting, I think, because I've, I've learned that um, Academics that do evaluation, at least a lot of them are not uh, thought highly of because they're two ivory towers, that there's an assumption that they don't understand on the, on the ground, real life experience of, of mm. folks. Now, so I don't believe that, but that's been how I've been perceived by others. I used to wonder about that. Well, just just so I can set the record straight, any any woman who publishes a book that, uh, you know, includes counting different kinds of candies as an activity for teaching and training uh, and increasing building evaluation capacity has not lost touch with the, the real people. <laughs> I'm speaking, you. of course, about your building evaluation capacity book, which I think you're, you're doing an updated version on. Yes, Darlene Rossetz and I are, are in the process of writing a second edition. And um, it, it's um, a book that we've loved working on. And the first edition had um, all the activities that the two of us had used over the years in our teaching and training. And um, yeah, we decided to do a second edition, but we're out of ideas. So we did a call out yeah. to 
variety of folks to see if they wanted to submit activities. And actually, we still have some openings. So if yeah. folks have an activity that they might want to contribute, they should just pop me an email and we could start a conversation. Yeah, and we get to know the podcast. Let's uh, put a plug in for that too. So okay. I, as, as um, some of our listeners will know from my previous podcast, dun, 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 I couldn't make it to CES. So I didn't get to hear this great keynote. So I'm, I'm really interested. Uh, Kylie's giving me sort of the real small C Coles notes. Um, why don't you tell us a bit about it? Okay. Well, the the title um, of the keynote was Evaluators as Game Changers, colon, a little bit of my academic training left, colon, Challenging Assumptions and Crossing Boundaries. And, um, you know, I was really taken and pleased with the theme of CES this year, which was crossing boundaries and knew that I wanted to do something, you know, in that vein. And when I chatted with the folks at CES, when they first invited me, they um, they suggested that it would be a good opportunity as the opening keynote uh, speaker to be provocative and to, you know, push the envelope a bit. And that was my sweet spot. I'd love to do that. Not, not that I ever thought of myself as a rebel. Um, but, um, over the years, I feel like I have been pushing the boundaries of evaluation, um, by following different streams of, of theory and practice. So I think I was one of the first to, you know, write about the link between organizational learning and evaluation or looking at evaluation as, um, you know, a catalyst for individual group and organizational learning along with my colleague, um, um, Rosalie Torres at the time. And um, and then I've written a book with Tessie Katsambas around using appreciative inquiry for evaluation. Right, right. Um, and so I feel like I've always felt that the the lines around the evaluation discipline should be um, permeable. That should be like a dotted line, not fixed hard lines about what's in and what's out. I think, you know, the theme that's run throughout my um, career, what is you see in or you hear about in the keynote is use. Evaluation is all about use, and I did my doctoral work many, many eons ago, and my dissertation at the time was on use. And I have—I'm a very—I'm a pragmatist, I think, at heart, um, and a romantic at the same time. Or else I don't think I'd still be in evaluation. But um, the idea that why bother to do evaluation unless it's going to be useful, useful for making decisions, useful for in, in enlightening, useful for um, lobbying, for position, for advocating, but useful in some legitimate way. So that's been the undercurrent or the thread or the tissue that really has bound all of my work over the years. Um, and so, you know, I remember being on a, a session with um, Michael Scriven years ago and describing, you know, evaluative inquiry for organizational learning and um, which, you know, borrows some of the processes from organization development and, um, as well as, of course, evaluation practice and, and the reflective practitioner and organizational learning and so on. And, and he said, I don't call that evaluation. I call that consulting. <laughs> and I, I thought hmm, that was an interesting <laughs> distinction. Oh. And so, you know, after that, I thought, well, you know, maybe I'm just not that mainstream. <laughs> but um, to me, evaluation is consulting. So I didn't have a problem with that. But um, so, so when I looked at when I thought about what do I want to talk about at CES and, you know, the based on what I'm seeing now, now that I'm in this consulting firm and I'm working with myriad, you know, organizations, and I'm seeing the struggles both at a, at a funding level and seeing the struggles at a, at a nonprofit on the ground level and communities. I see how government is kind of struggling around and in the U.S., you know, really going in one particular direction and not other directions. I, I've, I've constantly and increasingly feel that and worry that the evaluation field may be left behind. 
if we don't continue to learn and grow and adapt. And uh, that is embrace new technologies, embrace new practices, new philosophies, new disciplines, and, and to become more than we are right now. And I think the evaluation field, when we look at the membership, um, certainly of the American Evaluation Association, I can speak to that most knowledgeably, it's very diverse. You know, whereas 20 years ago, academics were the pri primary audience for AEA or members, it's the, now they're almost a minority. Right, so right. many more practitioners um, engaged in evaluation. So I think that's all good because I think it's going to keep fresh. But I do think that there are some developments in the, in the world that um, are putting pressures on us to, to adapt our practice and hopefully continue to evolve our theory around that practice. So um, we at FSG actually have been dealing or studying three particular issues um, and studying in a way through our practice and through some research that we're going to be um, uh, putting out um, to the field through some blog posts and a, and a learning brief, but then a conference at Stanford in November. Um, and we're calling that Next Generation Evaluation, colon, Embracing Complexity, Connectivity, and Change. And so I knew we were going to be doing this, so I thought, let me take those three ideas and put them into this context of evaluators as game changers, um, which will require evaluators to cross boundaries in their practice. And those three... Um, are developmental evaluation, shared measurement systems, and big data. So two of the three clearly are air topics that have been in the evaluation field for a while, not a whole long time, but at least I think most people are familiar with those, the developmental evaluation and the notion of shared measurement systems. But big data is certainly something that's sitting outside of the evaluation field. And, um, and it's, evaluators are, are not actually those who are uh, doing a lot of big, are using a lot of big data in their um, their work. So I thought I wanted to bring that out and talk about that as well. Right, right. So Hallie, could you just explain for people who aren't familiar with the term big data, what, what that means? Sure. So big data, I'm going to go to some of my notes because I think it's important to get this right. Um, because I'm new to the I'm new to this whole notion of big data too. So big data includes everything from sensors used to gather climate information, post to social media sites, digital pictures and videos, purchase transaction records, cell phone GPS signals, among others. So there are these cores and, and billions and gazillions bits of data that are being collected through just about everything we do every day, whether we're in a store, whether we're using social media, or whether we're driving in our car. And so the, the abundance of these data have created this term big data, or somebody has created this term big data. Um, and big data, um, you want me to say some more about big data, about what it, a little bit more about it, or should we move on to something else? Well, I think maybe um, if you'll get into some examples, I think that's going to help. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Paint the picture. So, yeah, that's, of course. Um, so, for example, um, I'll give you some uh, statistics and then give you some concrete examples of where we find big data. Great. So, um, for example, the, the stats say 10 million new photos are uploaded to Facebook every hour. Um, that 800 million monthly users of Google's YouTube uploaded over an hour of video every second. That the number of Twitter messages grows 200% per year and has exceeded, ready for this, 400 million tweets per day. Wow. So there's a lot of data out there, and, um, and we're all producing it all the time, as right. are many kinds of organizations. So when we started looking at, well, you know, uh, we're, what are some examples of, of big data that actually have 
some utility for evaluation. Um, I came up with a, a couple here. And so, for example, there is um, uh, a, or, um, a company called Ginger.io um, that is a mobile application in which patients with select conditions can agree to be tracked through their mobile phones and assisted with behavioral health therapy. So the app, the, again, the mobile phone app, records data about calls, texts, geographic location, and even people's physical movements. So patients respond, can respond to surveys delivered over their smartphones. And this application integrates patient data with public health um, research and other sources. And they have found that by tracking these data, they can tell if a patient is not moving, um, which might signal that they're unwell, or that they have irregular sleep patterns. Uh, which can be revealed through late night calls or texts, or that an anxiety attack is, is imminent. So if you were an evaluator, you know, and evaluating some intervention, some health intervention, you could use a, an app like this to track some of the um, yeah, behaviors of those who are receiving this therapy or intervention. Um, another example is in New York City, the Department of Education is actually using big data to target populations of special of beneficiaries and kind of segmenting them to try to figure out which students would benefit from which type of, 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 of action or, or teaching or training or, uh, or service. So big data is being applied in lots of different sectors. Um, uh, and the people doing the big data, um, there are firms being developed, uh, Palantir, Google has um, all these different little um, organizations are popping up that are not so little, um, and they hire analysts. And they're called data analysts who do this. So I feel like there's this new profession growing up and this new field called big data. Um, and I'm curious um, about the use for evaluation and, um, and what it means for evaluators to actually learn about the use of big data. So to me, the jury is out um, in terms of what it means for evaluation. But I think we need to start the conversation. And that's what I was uh, compelling CES audience members to start thinking about what does this mean for our practice? Because the writers, the authors of the book on big data, um, Mayer, Schonenberger, and Kukier, um, they pretty much spell, um, are predicting the demise of the social sciences, uh, especially around research and sampling, because with big data, you don't need to sample because you have the whole population. So, Hallie, I want to just jump in there because um... On day two, I'm not sure if you were around for John Gargani's keynote, where he um, talked a little bit about big data as well, and and he felt that big data didn't doesn't really care about the same things that evaluation does, uh, social change, equity, things like that. What's your take on that? Well, I think he's right. Uh, I was there for his keynote. Um, and you know the big the, the big data writers and, and thinkers around this don't really care about the why. They explain they they don't care about the why. They care about the what, and they don't care about causation. They look for correlations, and then predict behavior based on correlations. And because they have an N of all, they feel pretty confident that they can make those those predictions and generalizations. So um, you know I think in this goes to you know what is the use of big data if there is a use because it's not going to tell us why. So it may tell us, well, yes, this thing is working, so however working is defined, but it's not going to tell us why and what ways, and it's not going to help us learn about the, the nuances and, and perhaps the particular 
applications of that for a different population. You know, I can imagine, um, you know, the, the whole host of implications for an established evaluator who's used to your standard ways and thinking of collecting data. You know, uh, there, the, the data might not exist, so we better go survey someone or we need to go see. Um, you know, and a lot of us obviously have to be concerned with ethics or you talked about other social sciences and uh, fields. What are some of your thoughts on the biggest considerations that um, evaluation practitioners are going to need to be mindful of in the next five, 10 years as we either retool or think about um, how our discipline makes use of big data? <laughs> That's a great question. I wish I knew the answer. Um, I think it, it, it's hard for me to predict that, but I do think we have to, the first step is becoming knowledgeable about this, this I don't know if I call it a field, this development. And I think we should all become educated about what it is, where is it happening, how is it being used, who's picking up on it, um, and then to figure out where, if and where it has a place in evaluation practice. And I think it probably does. I mean, I think we'd be foolish to say, uh, we don't like that because it'll, it, you know, it's all about correlations and it's not going to tell us the why. It, it may be a, an issue of mixed method, you mm -hmm, know, that mm -hmm. we're, we should, we, uh, I mean, my, I come from a more of a qualitative research evaluation orientation, but I use mixed methods. I collect quantitative data when appropriate, when of needed, course, and, and design accordingly. Um, so I, I think that there's, you know, in my in my keynote, I talked about there were some advantages and disadvantages of doing it. And, you know, the, some of the advantages are those things that evaluators, you know, really um, strive for and desire, such as allowing us to collect data in real time. Increasingly, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how things, um, if you're hearing this, but the term real time, it, it rolls off the tongue in every conversation I have with any funder. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I was just thinking, um, I, I don't know what you think the relationship is between, you know, to the other categories you mentioned, but that whole aspect of real time. Of big data and its uber complexity uh, and and our sort of struggle to try and wrangle with such big data sets, you know, leads me to think again about, you know, the advent of developmental evaluation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, the last thing I sort of hand on, on big data, that's a great segue, but is that just because it's out there doesn't mean it's useful either. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. there's a, with the danger, so I said with, you know, one of the advantage, one of the dangers is just because it's there, we're going to try to use these big data and you know, gar garbage in, garbage out, or, you know, just because it's there doesn't mean it's useful. Well, and, um, and just on, on that point, I'd say, you know, evaluators should be well positioned as analytical creatures to help try and transform that data into meaningful information, which is then, you know, parlayed into useful knowledge. Um, and, and of course, you know, uh, you know, beyond, but um, yeah. So, so do you see a relationship between big data and, and DE or developmental evaluation? Yes and no. <laughs> no, they're totally different animals. Um, but yes, in the sense of the real time. So that would be, I would say, the, the thing that links them. I mean, developmental evaluation is something that um, I'm very, very excited about. And uh, I see it as a means for really providing I, either it's real time or just in time information to people who are you know, experimenting, trying out something new or different. Um, and they need the information around, you know, how things to help them understand how things are unfolding in that real time, in the sense that especially for, for interventions or, or initiatives 
where uh, they're they're novel or they you can't they can't predict all the outcomes at the beginning and the path to success is unclear because it's perhaps a very complex environment or a very um, uh, volatile environment or with multiple organizations um, all doing different things with lots of different moving pieces. So, uh, you know, developmental evaluation is, 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 I think, quite clearly something that's important um, before the model is developed, whatever that model is. If, if we look at the traditional definition of formative evaluation, it's really testing the model to, you know, to check for fidelity of implementation or to check for um, how to tweak, tweak the implementation right. or refine, right. right? So I would argue why, you know, why wouldn't you evaluate before you get to that point, before the model is solidified or before you're actually rolling it out and cost, it costs yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, that sort of pre-formative stage, if you will. Yeah, some people have called it that, um, but I think the, the only, and I think Michael Patton would agree, the only thing probably a tweak there is not all initiatives end up being a model. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so you don't want to presuppose it's a model. You're right. You're right there. We don't want to, right. I've, I've just um, been working on an evaluation where it's actually gone from a developmental to a formative, now into a formative phase. Um, and so, I, you know, my experience, developmental evaluation lasts anywhere from, in a multi-year initiative, anywhere from like 12 to 18 months. Where and then things start to stabilize and work themselves out. Things get mm -hmm. a little more predictable, clear, you know, um, uh, stable. And then if in a life cycle of a of a program, they, it, it would be um, you know moving into formative and potentially summative as well. Um, some of Paul Dugnan's work and others has been helpful when I when we get into the conversation with customers about uh, what's her evaluation approach and distinguishing that from the type. Of evaluation that's needed, oh, okay. whether there's a model. And when Kylie and I have talked about this, what struck us is DE is this kind of, you know, still emerging discipline or this sort of animal where it's got elements of approach when you talk to some evaluators and then others consider it a type. Why we we're having this discussion is, for example, I'm working on two training modules where developmental, I'm talking about uh, formative evaluation summative as a type and then we're talking about developmental as an approach and oh. you know that's the way that I've gone with it and um, you know James says well you know some people are actually calling it its own type and and maybe it's just it comes down to semantics but it would yeah. be interesting if you had a view on that yeah so I think words do matter because they you know, obviously shape the, the mental models that we have and how we communicate and relate to one another. So I, I, am firmly, I firmly believe that we have really messed up the evaluation field with the, the amount of terminology that we have. Um, and I spend half my time trying to translate with, with clients, you know, what they mean by things. When we, I say, to, in my way of thinking, um, developmental evaluation is a type of evaluation. Just like it is, just I would say formative evaluation is a type, I guess, and summative. And um, Tanya Beer and I wrote a white paper on uh, developmental evaluation called Evaluating um, Social Innovation. And the white paper is free on the FSG website to download. But in that white paper, we put together a, a graphic that we think depicts the position of developmental relative to formative and summative. And the oh, way I, we I love that graphic, it's great. Oh, good. Thank you. We actually, it looks pretty simple, but it took us a long time to come up with because we, people kept asking us, you know, through our independent work, um, you know, wh what's the difference between developmental and formative? 
And in our heads, we knew it, but we needed to graphically represent it in a way that made sense to people. So what we realized is that, if, if a way we think about it, is that you take an initiative, a program, and they typically have a life cycle. They have a beginning, a middle, and often an end. And uh, so, sure, some programs go on and forever and ever, but most, especially with philanthropy, a beginning, middle, and end. And we said, well, you know, we know summative is always at quite towards the end, right? And we know formative is somewhere, you know, in their middle somewhere. And we realized, you know, if we're really talking about developmental evaluation as a means for understanding the initiative as it's emerging, as it's developing, then that would be at the beginning of the life cycle in the, in the design process, the conceptualization process, and early, very early implementation. And so in that way, if when I think about it that way, that it, that it then is, is a type um, that is time dependent. Now, in all fairness, you could have an initiative where it moves into formative, but you introduce new aspects or new elements of the initiative that are very new and novel and experimental. So you might have a part of the initiative now right. that's getting developmental and part that's getting formative. Yeah, for so sure. That, some kind of hybrid is. But nonetheless, when I think of approach, I think of how am I going to approach the evaluation in terms of what's my philosophical orientation? Right. It's going to be empowerment or learning focused or utilization. And then sometimes I think of approach also with regard to design. Am I going to approach this from a, a positivist kind of standpoint? I'm going to do some kind of randomized control trial. Mm -hmm. Or am I going to approach this as a complex environment using multiple methods and I'm going to focus on stories and narrative. So to me, that's how I differentiate from type and approach. But that's it, great. I, I agree, James, if I'm in a conversation and we're going you know, past each other, I don't really care what we call it as long as we understand the construct and, and the concepts we're trying to communicate. Exactly. Yeah. And I think um, when we had this previous episode, we, we kind of came to the same conclusion that as long as you can be a good interpreter or a translator for whoever you're working with in whatever context, that's really what we need to be able to do. So, you know, back to your keynote two weeks ago as um, evaluators as game changers. So you've talked about big data and you've talked about developmental evaluation and complexity, there was a third point that you covered, was there not? Yes, um, shared measurement systems. So I'm not sure actually how many people know about shared measurement systems. I've made the assumption that they've heard about them or they've actually been engaged in some. And um, for a purpose of definition, um, a shared measurement system involves multiple organizations um, coming together to agree on a set of outcomes and indicators that they would collect data on and then ostensibly share and learn from. And um, we, FSG uh, wrote a white paper um, about four years ago called Breakthroughs in Shared Measurement. That's right. And um, that's, again, also on our website, free to download for anyone who wishes to take a look. And that's where we, we uh, researched about a dozen organizations that were had shared measurement systems. And we came up with three models. One is um, what we just called a shared measurement system, which is basically a pool of indicators around the topic that people who were going to be part of the system would uh, borrow from and develop their own instruments to collect data. But there was no agreement to share, and there was no agreement on what were the most important ones. The second type of uh, system was what we call a comparative shared measurement system. 
And this is where the group of organizations actually decide together what would be the outcomes and indicators that they care about around a particular issue and that they would, you know, input data into using a common form. Um, and then, uh, once they get the data back in forms of reports, um, and then they would have some kind of learning experiences with each other, uh, facilitated or online, however that was going to be. The third one was called an adaptive learning system. And those are harder to find, but that is typically community-based. And it's where, um, again, the group of people agree on the outcomes and indicators, uh, but they come together frequently to reflect on the data and use the data. And so it's much more intensive learning aspect to it. So, Holly, when... Um when you do evaluation in Canada with uh, a lot of federal departments here, there's one term that you you get, you get up to speed with quite quickly, and that's rolling up. And, and before I'd work for the feds, I'd, ne I'd never use this term, but this idea of rolling up the data from different projects across different provinces that may have different short-term outcomes, intermediate outcomes, but once they start to get to those those common long-term outcomes, then they were sharing those indicators. Is that kind of what you mean? It's similar. Yeah, I think the process we, we've been using might be different, but I think the idea is um, it's the, the goal isn't as much rolling up as it is learning from each other mm -hmm. and, and, and then figuring out how to um, you know, increase the effectiveness. So, for example, I've worked uh, briefly with a, 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 a state in the U.S., um, and two organizations came together um, to help nonprofit organizations provide better and more effective financial services for the poor and uh, fi financial empowerment services. And they chose 15 nonprofit organizations who provide these services, brought them together over a period, well, now they've been going almost two years, um, to share, they developed logic models and shared those and went through a process of articulating what their outcomes are and indicators and then kind of voting, going through a voting process mm. on which ones are most critical across the collective, across the 15, and then went through a definitional process and then a prioritization process and came up with a set of indicators that they all agreed to collect data on, then collectively designed the survey instrument and have been you know, piloting their, their, their system. So in Canada, I know, for example, in the HIV community, uh, on a provincial level, this is happening in British Columbia and Alberta and Ontario, where they did all of the AIDS service organizations got together and did kind of hammer out what would be those shared indicators. And one of the, the things that is is that they really like, they found it a difficult process to work towards, but once they were able to get to that point, every year now they have a, a knowledge transfer session, a one-day conference, everybody comes and then they get a peek at the data and they get to work with it and start to move forward. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. And that's, Great. It's the use of the data that makes all the difference. It's not putting the data in, right? It's, it's getting it back and saying, oh, you know, one of the things that we, we learned through this uh, initiative I was speaking about is that when people came around and, and talked about what they do, they realized that there was duplication. Mm -hmm. and, yet, and yet there were gaps in their communities as well. And so the process of coming to agreement around the outcomes was really helpful in them saying, well, wait a minute, you mean I don't really need to provide that service anymore because you're doing it. What I really want to do is X. So it really liberated them to think about how they could really use their strengths and assets more effectively. Um, but, and then of course, learn from the data. And I think one of the reasons, you know, we're interested and I'm interested in the shared measurement system 
uh, work is that uh, so many nonprofits don't have resources to do any evaluation, to collect right. any data. And we are also expecting, you know, one organization to change the world, you know, one organization at a, at a time. And so I think this whole notion of the collective um, coming together and thinking about what's important to measure, because what, whatever you measure is what you do, right? So it really is a very symbiotic relationship between program and, and evaluation. And I think the shared measurement systems can really help nonprofits, but also funders learn about what's important to measure. And, and Kylie, it's really hard work. <laughs> There's yeah. no question. Yeah. Some, uh, when I was kind of doing a feasibility study on it for British Columbia, the people in Ontario and Alberta, I think they said it moved at a glacial pace is the way that they characterized it. You talk about it being hard work. I've seen a lot of fighting, you know, or your conversations around one table, people go back to their own regions they talk about things with their own executives and they say, well, that I, why should I participate in that? And they don't trust that the resources are going to be used wisely or that executive thinks I know what I need. And I just, again, you sort of, you know, circle the wagons and you invest in your own. Right. It's, it's, it takes a measure of trust, I would think. And it I does. think probably some measure of, um, and this is the kind of thing I like doing, but is some measure of collaboration at an evaluator's level. You know, where the people that are, are trying to support the respective decision makers and learners, they themselves probably have no, you know, strong vested interest other than to try and collaborate. And they maybe see the inherent opportunity. And so, you know, I, I don't know what your experience as you um, canvas these different organizations are. But, you know, you talk about uh, evaluators, you know, as maybe potential change agents there. So does that mean like then building the capacity, evaluation capacity of those other folks? I mean, exactly. Like, exactly. And I think, you know, in my keynote, what I was trying to also set up is if we wanted to engage in these um, three big ideas or practices or game changing practices, the evaluators are going to have to do something different. And, you know, and I think you touched on it, James, you know, for shared measurement systems. You know, I suggested that we need to be group process facilitators, negotiators, mediators, consensus builders, learning coaches, connectors, in addition to being trusted, credible, knowledgeable about evaluation and design. So there's a lot of organization development skills that are really built in both to developmental evaluation, but also facilitating groups around shared measurement systems. So, Hallie, that's a nice segue into a question that I wanted to ask you around, um, you know, given these kind of game changers in the fields, what thoughts do you have on training this, um, as you call them, the next generation of evaluators? <laughs> um, boy, well, for a long time, I've thought that the, certainly if we look at graduate education, um, that we've really been missing the mark on some of our evaluation programs. Um, and again, I, I don't know what evaluation programs look like too much in Canada, though I have some colleagues at universities in Canada. But oftentimes, the, you know, the graduate programs are in that touch on evaluation are focused on research methods and analysis, you know, heavy stats or qualitative analysis, but it's all the, 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 the middle stuff that I was, um, that evaluation is about data collection and analysis and very little on the bookend, you know, the, how do you engage stakeholders and how do you develop processes for, for learning and how do you help make, help make sense of the data and, um, uh, report, communicate and report in multiple ways. And, 
um, and, and how to use technologies for learning. And so I, I think there's a lot of, um, and, you know, that we're not doing at the graduate level um, to help prepare people. So I think that would be nice. Um, at the same time, I think graduate educa- graduate evaluation programs are kind of waning. And I think, you know, they're having trouble getting students. Um, probably the, the future is more in professional development, you know, opportunities. So like CES and AEA and other national evaluation associations having workshops, you know, training. Um, certainly we could see, uh, you know, that we have in the U.S., we have, you know, Evaluators Institute. We have the Claremont Summer Program. Um, we have the AEA Summer Institute. So there are lots of professional development opportunities. But I think an evaluator who wants to kind of go to that, I don't know if I call it the next level, but who wants to stay current and who wants to help lead the field practically, um, we really should look at developing some of these other skills um, that I mentioned, among others, getting knowledgeable about big data, getting knowledgeable about, you know, how do you handle conflict within groups? How do you negotiate? How do you mediate? How do you um, put good agendas together? How do you engage people in learning in different ways? Uh, small group, large group. I think there's a lot of that that we could do better um, at. So you've given us a lot to uh, think about. I, I was more worried to hear that you were going to suggest we need more PhD programs and, you know, uh, 10 years of school. And um, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I think a lot of these kind of learnings need to be um, structured in you know, workshops that are, you know, manageable within a shorter period of time, but then you've got to get back out to the field and try and apply them. And as Kylie and I have talked, particularly for independent consultants um, who aren't part of maybe a large organization, is you you need a community of other people who have these skills that uh, maybe they, you know, you don't master them, but, you know, they're they're the known knowns or the known unknowns, I should say. And, And you learn how to collaborate with other groups there. I think um, again, working, facilitating with, with our customers, but also linking with others around this. I think it's an incredibly exciting field. And um, I really like the way you've, you've summarized these sort of three sort of, uh, you know, big um, opportunities for us to kind of think about um, as we each every year at least should think about, you know, what I want to work on this year. And maybe big data is one that I want to learn more about. Any kind of additional or closing thoughts there, Helen? Yeah. Yeah, thanks, James. I think as I was listening to you, I realized, too, that, you know, communities of practice are very popular these days, and at least as an idea. And I think if we could somehow figure out how to do those better um, and, and engage evaluators in communities of practice where they could learn from each other around right. these ideas and others, that would be another way to continue one's development. I think it's really hard because people are working lots of different hours and scheduling is difficult and so on. Uh, but the one thing I, I didn't mention, I really wanted to in terms of learning, I do worry as much of a pragmatist as I am, and as much as I love practice, I do worry about the loss of theory. And um, I mean, I used to call myself a theoretical practitioner in the sense that everything I do or did, I could link to a theory about something, that there was a, there was a reason, there was a grounding, there were models or frameworks or uh, research that was underlaid um, you know, why I do what I do. And um, I think with the waning of graduate programs, um, the the decrease in, in membership or at least attendance like at CES or AEA um, of academics, um, I worry that we're, we're um, going to lose. Um, practice will get ahead of theory. 
And I do think there, there, it's great to practice and then do theory. So I don't think you always have a theory before you practice. Mm. But um, I'd hate for us to uh, lose the thinking, the, the continued development of new ideas around evaluation. Um, and so that, that concerns me a little bit, but I'm an optimist. Mm. I'm sure we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Hallie, it's been great to have you here, and I'm really glad that you could share some of your insights with uh, my favorite evaluation colleague, James, but um, also with our 1,600 listeners. Um, is there anything else you want to kind of share with us before we wrap up? Just, I, I, you know, I, I worry. I think I started this off saying I worry a lot about the future, but I'm also really excited. Um, I've been in the field over 30 years, and I haven't been bored one day. And um, I, it offers, <laughs> I think the field just offers so many opportunities. And um, I think we just have to figure out how we as individuals can continue to learn and contribute in, in important ways. So thank you for this opportunity. It was fun. Oh, it was our pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. And very inspiring, Hallie. I mean, I, 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 there isn't a minute that, that we don't enjoy either, huh? Mostly sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't say it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I pretty much get up every morning with a big smile on my face, looking forward to what I have to do. So, Well, and you know, just on that sort of note around worrying, I think when we've talked before, Hallie, I, I mentioned that uh, there are icons, you know, and, and established ongoing practitioners like yourself in the field that actually help me worry less, you know, because, <laughs> you know, there's some, there's some solace in knowing that, you know, the people have been there doing the work that are on the edge, um, struggle with this too. Uh, but you often offer great solutions and, and, you know, really and truly it's, um, it's great to, to meet you and chat in person. And, and it's also nice to go back to some touchstones and read some of your writings. And so we'll be happy to share some of those online on our website. Oh, Thank you. Oh, oh, let's all just have a big group hug, shall we? <laughs> Let's sing Kumbaya. So, so with Kumbaya in our minds, I would like to thank our listeners for tuning in today and encourage you to give us your feedback, your thoughts, your requests for future speakers, uh, or your protests to uh, adventuresandevaluation.podbean.com. Go to that website and you can uh, leave us a message under this podcast, or you can send us an email directly, uh, adventuresandevaluationpodcast at gmail.com. So, James and Hallie, I wish you all the best this week in evaluation. You too. Hallie, thank you so much. Take care. Bye.